Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Uh, some of you know this already. I did campus ministry for about 22 years or so with uh, Reform University Fellowship, and so I have lots of experience with college students and lots of memories of conversations that I had with students over the years. I remember this one conversation I, I got into with a young man, and uh, it was, he was not a Christian, and we ha- were having a great conversation. I was explaining the gospel and I'm watching our banner fall in the back, right back there. Almost, yeah, almost got you, Dana. There you go. So, it's good. <laughs> so uh, all eyes up here. Oh, by the way, the uh, the thing in my eye—that uh, is not a punch from Rebecca. That was uh, I poked myself in the eye while I was sleeping. So it, apparently it will heal. So good, self-inflicted. Okay. So y'all are good. Okay, back in the. <laughs> okay, so back to what I was saying. I didn't want you to get crushed by that weightless banner. So that's why I stopped for a second. Um, so we were having a great conversation between this young man and I, and uh, at one point he just stopped and he said uh, that he, he didn't agree with anything I was saying because, he, after all, there is no evidence for God. There's no evidence for God. And so I said, well, what kind of evidence would do it for you? What kind of evidence would prove to you? So you said beyond the shadow of a doubt, like, there, there right here, I know it now that he's here. And uh, the student sat there for just a moment and finally said, I, I, I don't know what I would be looking for. And, I, you know, that's really an honest answer, and I think the right answer, because if we have a God who transcends time and space and energy and all the things that we can study, and we normally say, hey, this is where the evidence would come from, if he transcends all of that and it's not a part of it, how would you prove that? Because God doesn't leave fingerprints. He doesn't leave footprints. He doesn't wear cologne, as far as I'm aware. He doesn't leave a calling card. He doesn't leave DNA anywhere laying around that you could, you know, you could find in forensics. Uh, so how would you go about proving the existence of God? But what if God was never really concerned to deal with the abstract question about the, the existence of an abstract God? What if he's not been in that business at all? What if, for God, that's a given? So when we ask the question, is there a God, you've got to understand in earlier times, besides you know, post-enlightenment in the West, people just took the answer for, uh, took that question as a given, or the answer to that question, of course God exists. How else would you explain everything? So almost everybody took that for granted. Granted, there was a writer who said this. He said, the propensity to believe in the divine runs very deep in the human psyche. We are, psychologists such as Bruce Hood says, hardwired for religion. So my eyes are hardwired to see the world, but there's something inside of us that's hardwired to perceive God, to seek, to, to reach out after God. So maybe, maybe to God, his existence is just a given. Maybe it's so obvious as to need no verification from the outside that way. Maybe God is really dealing with us with a different question. And it's this question. What kind of God exists? What is he really like? And, and one writer, one speaker I heard say, maybe God didn't give us a formula or an equation to work out in a laboratory or in a blackboard. Maybe instead he was giving us not an airtight argument. Maybe he was giving us an airtight person to answer that question. 
a completely and utterly airtight person with no holes, no cracks, no leaks, no weakness. What if, what if he gave us a life to look at and examine? So maybe God was not intending to answer our abstract questions about an abstract deity so much as he was answering our experiential questions about a personal God. And to answer that question, he sent Jesus. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read in Mark 6, verses 30 through the end of the chapter. The apostles, remember the apostles were sent off on a missionary journey, and in the meantime, there's the death of John the Baptist and his beheading. So we pick up in 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of, and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and uh, moored to the shore and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. All of it is inspired by his Holy Spirit. It's all true. And he's given it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and ask him to bless us and see how this relates to our lives in the present age. 
Lord Jesus, we come before you now acknowledging uh, the weirdness of this in, so many, in, in, in many ways. It's so outside of our experience to have somebody multiply food the way that you did, to see somebody walking on the water. And uh, we're not quite sure what to do with that and how to bring that into our own lives. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us that you would enable us to see you and all of your majesty and power and your otherness, but also to see you in your tenderness and your compassion uh, and your likeness to us. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Lord, would you bless me? Um, I pray that you would give me the words that would minister to your people, convince the skeptic, and glorify you. Would you bless us? Would you be with us? We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. And Jesus. Um, Je- in Jesus, they're, they're, he, they're juxtaposed really many contrasting qualities. So you have humility and glory, gentleness and authority, humanity and divinity. In Mark's gospel, and, and I, I feel like most of my sermons touch on two topics in Mark, Mark's gospel, one is his power, because he performs so many miracles as you, as you go through the book. Um, but power bothers us as Americans. We've seen power be misused too often, and some of us are skeptical of just the idea of anybody having power. And then there's another thing that we see in this, and that is compassion. And sometimes we see compassion, and compassionate people are sometimes pushovers. Uh, they don't seem to have power. They don't seem to really be able to exert change. So we we constantly need to be reminded, and I think this is where Mark keeps, Mark keeps talking about these two topics, the power of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, all this melded into one person. So we're going to talk about that again today with the, the miracles, power in his miracles, compassion in his provision, and depend, dependability in his intent towards us. So in this passage, we have two iconic miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, and walk, Jesus walking on water. And then there's kind of a broad brush stroke of all these other people that Jesus was healing just by touching the fringe or the hem of his garment. So let's talk about this and what, what, we, what we can learn from it. So one, the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus that appears in all four of the Gospels. This is, so this is a pretty significant thing to study because all of them talk about it and there's a lot to be said about it that doesn't appear in Mark. But here's the, mark as, here's the scene as Mark portrays it. So at least 5,000 men, it says, were here, but there are probably m- women and children at this too. So some people have estimated maybe 10,000 people were here when Jesus performed this miracle. But they ran to where Jesus was in the middle of the wilderness because they, were, uh, they saw where his boat was heading and where it was going to land, and they wanted to see Jesus and be around Jesus. So they all gather, and they're so captivated by Jesus' teaching, they're riveted that they ignore even their own hunger. So the apostles come and remind Jesus as the day is about to uh, wane, and, and, and uh, that's the right word, right? Wax, wane, wane, wane. As the day is waning, and uh, I'm just having fun. And uh, it's the eye. We'll blame the eye. I can't remember my words today. Uh, so the day is waning. And uh, they come and say, Jesus, uh, send the people away. They don't have any food. They're going to have to go into the surrounding countryside and find food somewhere, scrounge some up from different places. Uh, And then Jesus says, no, you feed them. And so that gets them in kind of a dither. 
about how they're going to be able to do this. And all of this leads up to Jesus taking a few loaves of bread and two fish and creating or multiplying somehow the food in his own hands. In his hands, he's doing this. Now, I did watch the Chosen episode of this just to see how they handled this. And so if you're watching The Chosen, uh, there's the scene with the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus breaks the bread, the way it talks about here. And then the disciples, I think, start cutting up the pieces into, the, into these buckets. And so they close up the buckets thinking, okay, we don't really have enough to feed all these people, but here we go. And one of them opens up one of the baskets, the lid, and it is filled with bread and fish. And so the other ones start opening up the baskets, and it's filled with bread and fish. And so it ends up being a miracle that takes place in the baskets uh, as, as, it's, uh, pa- as they're kind of passed around and laying on the ground. But as you actually read through the passage, and I got this from a preacher named Bill Hogan years ago. It was the first time I'd heard it. He said, as you look at the original Greek, that's not what's going on. On the chosen, it takes place, the miracle takes place in the baskets. But as you look at the passage, when it says that he gave, the, gave it to them, the, the idea in the Greek is that he kept giving it to them over and over and over. So the miracle is taking place in Jesus' hands. So the disciples take the bread and they go and de- deliver it to the people. And then they come back and Jesus provides more. And how long this would take, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, when you have a short episode like the, for the chosen, it's got to take place pretty quickly. But I'm sure it took a while for all of these people. And all the while they're watching, there's no, there's no Uber Eats that's pulled up. There's no Aldi truck that's pulled up. There's no bread maker selling bread that's showing up. Jesus is there breaking minuscule pieces of bread and delivering to the people, and it eats, they eat, and it says they were all satisfied, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. That's pretty amazing, right? Is it baskets full? Baskets full. There we go. Okay. Iconic miracle. Second iconic miracle. Jesus walked on water. Right? They're in the boat. He's on the shore. They, he sees they're in distress. He walks across the water. He walks across the water. It is not an optical illusion. There is no sandbar. He did not invent a surfboard for this occasion. Jesus walked on top of the water. So what are we reading? And and it also says he healed all of these people. What do we make of this? What are we reading about? What are we observing? We're observing this. Jesus has power over everything. Everything. Jesus was overriding the basic laws of science and physics that govern our everyday lives. We understand basic basic physics. No new matter, no new particles can be created. But apparently, Jesus was doing something in his hands, making bread that wasn't there appear. He's He's either got hands that are photocopying bread and making it in his hands in a way that nobody else can, or he's just creating it out of thin air. Jesus appears to be doing just what we think physics says he can't do. He's overriding the system. We know about solids and liquids and gases. We learned about these things in high school, right? We know about these things, and because of what we know, Jesus should not be able to walk across the surface of the water, but he is. He's overriding what we would say is basic Physics, that's exactly what they claim to have seen Jesus doing, showing that he is not subject to natural laws in the same way that we are. We are bound by natural limitations, but that does not mean that that doesn't give us any reason to think that God is bound by the same limitations or really by any limitations. 
A God who can create everything out of nothing can apparently do whatever he wants to do. So, why would we assume that he cannot act upon the system in ways that we cannot? He's the master of it. He's the creator of it. He can override it whenever he wants. And we should expect that because of the identity of Jesus and who he is. But let me help you kind of think about this for a moment because it bothers modern people post-enlightenment to think that miracles can be real, right? So let me just give you some ways of thinking about it. One, um, the back door on your computer. You might not know your computer has a back door on it, but it has a back door on it that people who are working on your computer, they can get in. So my wife's father passed away. He had kind of a, an iMac, one of those big Mac, top, Mac desktop computers. And when he died, we could not find his password. But it's a very nice computer. So we're thinking, we still want the computer. How do we get all of the stuff off of it you know, and, and download it? We couldn't. So eventually, Mac said, you're going to have to put it back to factory settings. You're not going to be able to get to that information. And I thought... How do you do that? So I spent a lot of time on, with the Mac people, Apple people, about how do I do this? And they say, if you, well, if you press these keys after you turn on your computer and hold it down until this screen comes up, and then you'll have a new screen. So usually when I turn on my Mac, it's just my home screen. I recognize it. But when I did this, a whole different screen came up. And I realized somebody's pulled a fast one on me. How in the world did they build this into my computer that they could come in through the back door? And it makes perfect sense because they're the designers of the computer. They knew that was there all along, and they didn't break the operating system. They just built a back door to come into the operating system. What if that's the way Jesus is interacting with miracles? He's just coming in through the back door. He's overriding the system. He just knows I have the control, command, delete buttons, and I can press these, and it's going to come up a different way. Maybe. Or how about this one? You may not like the computer image. How about this, a military dog? Uh, do you know what language they train military dogs? Or, uh, what, what language? English, German. German, largely German. So if I were speaking English to a German-taught guard dog, military dog, he's not going to listen to me. Uh, he's going to listen to his trainer, to the person who controls the dog, who's going to be speaking to him in his voice in German. Maybe that's the way creation is with Jesus. He's the master. He's the owner. So he can speak, and the creation just obeys him. Or let me give you a third one. Have you think about this? So Isaac Newton, we all learned, nobody believed in gravity before Isaac Newton, right? He was the one who invented, he invented gravity, didn't he? No, absolutely not. So the way the story, we're to, the story we're told is Isaac Newton is laying at the bottom of an apple tree and an apple falls and he watches it and he realizes every time an apple falls, it falls to the ground. There's nothing, it doesn't fly off into space, it's because of gravity. And so we've developed these laws of gravity. But what if I, Sir Isaac Newton were under the tree, the apple fell, and it didn't hit the ground? Would that trouble us? And the answer is not if he stuck out his hand and stopped the natural cause and effect that was taking place. What if that's what Jesus is doing? He's just injecting himself and stopping, reaching into natural cause and effect because he can. I can stop an apple, but he can stop the laws of physics and interject himself into that. What if that's what he's doing? But no matter what, how he did it, what we're seeing is modern people say that miracles can't happen. Miracles don't happen, and they are right, unless they did happen. Unless Jesus actually performed miracles, and then the question becomes, how and why did that happen? And the moral of the story here is not, miracles can happen, 
the moral of the story here is Jesus performed miracles. Jesus performed miracles. And Mark has already told us why. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He started his whole account of the life of Jesus with that phrase. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So understand what's being communicated here. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over the physical world. He is Lord over physics. He has power over ecosystems. He is Lord over the weather. He is Lord over supply and demand, the food chain, cause and effect. He is Lord over all of the things that we study in science. He is over everything in a way that nothing else is. And so uh, this is pointing to his identity. It's pointing to the reality that Jesus is someone, something unique in the history of the entire world. He has power that only God has. So what are we dealing with? The person of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son, the second person person of the Trinity in the flesh. Jesus is unique in all the history of the world. He is not like Gandhi. He is not like Muhammad. He is not like Martin Luther King Jr. He is not like Abraham. He is not like the Dalai Lama, thank goodness. Um, He's not like any of the world's religious or moral teachers. He's something different something amazing, and something better. He is God in human flesh. Charles Spurgeon said this, whatever God is, Christ is. The very likeness of God, the very Godhead of Godhead, the very deity of deity is in Christ Jesus. And this is the point of the passage. This is what he's pushing us to see, is Jesus is able to do anything everything. He's God in the flesh. And as you go through the passage, there are hints that this is what Mark is really talking about. Some of you, as we're reading through, you may have gotten the parallel between this and some Old Testament passages where God feeds people in the desert. Uh, When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, God provided manna from heaven. And commentators looking at this passage say that's what we're supposed to be picturing. There was also a passage involving Elisha in, in, uh, what's the book? Thank you. We'll say kings. That'll work. work. I have it in my head, but I can't remember what it is. Um, But there's a passage with Elisha where he is uh, feeding people bread miraculously. So the bread is left over like this. It's pointing to the fact that John the Baptist was the Elijah, and then Jesus is the Elisha who was going to come to perform even more miracles than Elijah did. And then when Jesus is walking on the water, there's a little phrase, that, there are two little phrases that key in commentators that he's talking about Jesus being something more. That weird little phrase where Jesus, it says Jesus was intending to pass by the boat. Why, did he, why was he going to pass by the boat? Commentators say the, the language that's being used there is paralleling the language when Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord in Exodus 33 and 34. And it says that God, call, he, he caused his glory to pass by Moses, but he covered him up in the cleft of the rock. So commentators look at that language and say, that's what Jesus was intending to do, to cause his glory to pass by. But his disciples were so terrified, he went ahead and did something incredible. He got into the boat with them. The very glorious one of the Old Testament got into the boat with them as an intimate friend. And what does he say? He says this thing that in the Greek is a little bit off. Uh, it's, it's, it's specific, but in English we kind of can translate it in a number of ways. But when he says in the passage, uh, it is I, do not be afraid, the Greek phrase is ego emi. It's saying I am. 
which is the Old Testament name that God gives for himself. I am who I am. So there's all these things in the text hinting to the reality that this is the God who exists. So the question we're asking is, what is, what is the God who exists like? He's like this. He's like Jesus. So what do we see about Jesus in this? Well, in Mark 6.34, we see, uh, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This God is compassionate. That's what we see as we go into this passage. Um, it's his compassion that leads him to provide food for all of these people. It's his compassion that leads him uh, to teach these people who were without shepherds, guiding them and leading them. It was his compassion that led him to get into the boat, with, uh, go out to the boat with his, where his apostles were struggling. It's his compassion, and it says he has the compassion uh, like a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus is the shepherd. I, there's a, a writer by the name of Andrew Wilson, and uh, he gives, him, gives us some idea of how important the idea of God being shepherd is to us in the Bible. So he writes this. He said, did you know that the word sheep appears in the Bible more than the word grace? Over twice as often as the word pray and nearly three times more than the word church. Or that the New Testament uses shepherd seven times as often as Christian. Shepherds and sheep were everywhere in the ancient world and everyone knew about them. In our industrialized world, though, most people have never met one. So when we hear God called a shepherd, we don't really understand what is being said. So there's an aspect of it where he's protecting and, and he is providing. And here with the people when he's teaching, he's guiding them. But another reason that he uses the word sheep is because sheep are helpless and they lack basic understanding of anything. And they can't take care of themselves. That's just sheep. I've, I was going to get a video, and I thought, ah, that could be breaking the copyright, so we won't do it. So I'll tell you the video, and you go Google it later. There are actually several videos like this. But the videos, in, in, inevitably, in, almost without fail, they start with a sheep in, the tr in a trench, like a little ditch. It's usually like Scotland or someplace where they have a lot of sheep. And you can see the white back of the sheep, and he's just stuck. There's no way he's getting out. So the shepherd reaches into the trench, grabs the back legs, and it seems like they're being a little rough with the sheep, but I would too if I was having to fish him out of a trench. And so he pulls him out of the trench, sets him on the ground, and the, the sheep immediately jumps up and bounds off like, I'm a happy sheep, I'm a happy sheep, and then gets a really big leap into the air and lands right back into the trench. <laughs> You're thinking, what in the world? Um, and I'm glad they didn't do the vo voiceover of what the shepherd was probably saying at that point. Right back into the trench. And so when we come into this passage, and he's saying they were like sheep without a shepherd. The sheep need the shepherd. They just do because of their frailties and their weakness. Now, what's amazing about this for me is as you go through the passage, you don't really know anything about the people other than they don't have shepherds to, to guide them. But the people that you do see, that you do relate to in the passage are the apostles. And that's where you see people who are prone to jump back into the trench. Because as you read through the passage, the passage started in verse 30 with them coming back to Jesus and saying all the things they've done. We preached and all these people believed and we performed miracles and it's this fantastic thing. And so when they get back to where Jesus is, we see them having, we see that they're weak people, they're frail people. They're confused people. They're even hard 
hearted people. And when Jesus says that their, you know, their hearts are hardened, uh, that's not really a rebuke. That's a compassionate statement of him saying, wow, uh, you know, these are the people I'm going to send out. And he's coaxing them and trying to lead them back to a proper understanding. And what's going on is Jesus is showing us what God is like. Because like the apostles, some of us have a tendency to have this phrase that goes through our mind. And I hear people say it. I ought to. I ought to by now. I ought to have more faith. I ought to have more knowledge. I ought to do this more. I ought to have overcome this by now. I ought to have done this. And the reality is we don't see ourselves as sheep. And because of that, we don't understand the real deep affection that Jesus has for us. We put more pressure on ourselves than Jesus is really putting upon us. He's coaxing the apostles and saying, you are hard-hearted. But for us, we look at ourselves and say, I should be past this. I shouldn't need the shepherd anymore. But he's saying, no, we are sheep. And in Hebrews 2.11, he tells us something that's amazing about Jesus' attitude towards us now, not just compassion, but in Hebrews 2.11, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister. He's not ashamed to call you a sibling because he loves us and he knows our frame that we are but dust. He loves us. Uh, Brennan Manning has this great little phrase I came across this week as I was just doing some reading on my own. And uh, he's, he's saying, you may feel ashamed of yourself, but Jesus is not ashamed of you. He says, grace calls out, you are not just a disillusioned old man who may die soon. A middle-aged, man stuck in a, a middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out. A young person feeling the fire in the belly begin to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken, or pot-bellied, which is really, uh, it hits close to home. Um, death, panic, depression, and disillusionment may be near you, but you are not just that. You are accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you are really accepted. God doesn't feel about you the way that you feel about yourself. You have to trust what the scripture says, that he loves us and has compassion on us, even though we may be like sheep quite often and get ourselves right back into the same trench that we were in before. And in love, he comes and pulls us right back out. But uh, we see these things. We see his power. We see his compassion. But we also see this. Uh, He provides bread in our hungry wilderness. He walks miraculously to us in our struggle to show that he can provide for us in the midst of our broken things. He's dependable. And not only can he provide for us, but he can provide righteousness to cover our guilt. His miracles confirm that everything Jesus said that he would do, he could do, and he will do. If he has the power to interject himself in the system, to change the operating system to do as he wills, then he has the ability to do all that he says that he will do on our behalf. And he can do it because he has the power to do it, and he will do it because he has the compassion to do it. So Jesus says things like this in Scripture. I will be with you even to the very end of the age. And you know what? He is. In three days, I will raise this body up again, speaking of himself. And he did. 
He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, which he has, he says, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. And he will. He said, I will raise him up at the last day, speaking of our resurrection. And guess what? He has both the power and the inclination and love to do that. He says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And because of him, we do have eternal life. We can't produce bread in our hands from thin air, nor can we produce righteousness in our lives from sinful hearts. But Jesus, by his power and presence, his perfect life and perfect death, has produced the righteousness that we need. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. There is nothing that he cannot do for you. And that doesn't mean that he will do anything you ask him to do, but it means that we can trust that he will do as he says and will accomplish it because he loves us. In our weakness, he loves us. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the good little boy. You don't have to be the good little girl for him to love you. But what he calls us to do is to believe that he does love us. Listen to this from Brendan Manning. Again, same book I was reading. He says, God is not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. He's the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners. But the, fa the Father of Jesus loves all no matter what they do. But of course, this is almost too incredible for us to accept. Nevertheless, the central affirmation of the Reformation stands through no merit of our own, but by his mercy, we have been restored to a right relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son. This is the good news, the gospel of grace that we believe. God saves us single-handedly because he wants to, and he wants us to believe that, to rest upon that. And he also wants us to recognize this from this passage, is that God uses us even in our weakness. The, this passage tells us what God intends to do with limited resource people. Jesus simply said, what do you have? A few loaves? I'll use that, right? We may think that in, in terms of our lives that we cannot be used by Jesus, but Jesus says, I'll use that. Bring your resources to me. I'll use that. For some of you, you're good teachers and good communicators. You can explain things well. Jesus says, I can use that. Some of us have, uh, are good, really good at understanding the broken parts of people's lives. And Jesus says, I can use that. For others of us, we want to step in immediately and help other people and say, this person has a need. I want to meet that need. Guess what? Jesus says, I can use that. I'll use that. And for some of us, uh, we have a story uh, of our own brokenness. And we think that's all we have is a story of how God has met us with his grace in our lives. And guess what? He says, I can use that. So Lindsey Brown, who has worked with International Missions Movement, she told this kind of powerful story. She said, some years ago, I was speaking on the doctrine of justification by grace through faith at a student conference in Argentina. It was a starry night, and after speaking, I went out to a to appreciate the stars in the southern hemisphere. An older man followed me. He was an elderly Dutch missionary. I'm not going to do the accent, just for those of you. Thank you, he said, for speaking about this great truth tonight. I myself have spoken on the same theme many times, and I'm always deeply moved when reminded of it by others. Why is that, I inquired. Well, he said, 
During the Second World War, I was a member of the Hitler Youth. I did and saw terrible things. Soon after the war, I tasted God's saving grace and I became a Christian and followed Jesus Christ. Then God called me into Christian ministry and I was sent as a pioneer missionary to Irian Jaya, which I, that's probably not the way you say it, but that's the way I'm saying it. There God used me in revival. On one Sunday, I baptized 2,000 new believers. So do you see why this great truth is so important to me? Because it reminds me that no trough is so deep that God cannot raise us out of it by his grace and set our feet on land. I deserved to be judged and cast out. But because of God's justifying grace, not only did he save me, and not only did he use me in ministry, but he saw fit to use me in revival. It's a great picture. The miracle takes place in Jesus' hands. He doesn't just send the apostles off with bread and say, go feed all of those those people. They keep coming back to him because in his hands, it's not just bread. His hands is grace and life and truth and all that we need. It's in the hands of Jesus. And I loved this man, which I know I'll meet in heaven. It reminds me that there's no trough so deep for the sheep that God cannot raise us out of it by his grace and set our feet on land. We have one who loves us. We have one who's powerful. And not only is he able to do what he says, but he is willing to do it because he loves us. Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.